We can invite everyone to turn their cameras on. It's nice to see everybody. Um, you sure about that? Yeah, I think I am. Okay. So please peruse. Right, I'm driving, so I can't. Yeah, if you're driving, then you you're excused. And <laughs> um, those not shaved also excused. I guess so. Okay, so it's six thirty. Uh, we'll like to introduce our speaker right now. Uh, you should know him, and if you don't, you will tonight. His name is His Holiness Rita Ananda Das Goswami. He met Srila Prabhupada in Berkeley, California, where he was studying, finishing his studies uh, at the University of California, Berkeley, in 1969. He was called by Prabhupada uh, as an Prabhupada expressed that he has a transcendental brain because he already uh, memorized the Sri Sopanishad. He was giving classes on, on the Sri Sopanishad and wanted to train him personally. Um, he was named GBC for South America and the Southeastern of the United States. Took sannyas in 1972 um, at the tender age of 23, I believe. Very um, tender, yes. Very, very early, <laughs> very, very tender. And um, he's an author, uh, written numerous books, finished Prabhupada's uh, inconclusive Srimad Bhagavatam, uh, the rest of the 10th canto, 11 and 12 cantos. Uh, he got a degree from Harvard in Sanskrit and Indian studies in unprecedented time, a very short amount of time. Um, he's a very well-known speaker. He's a polyglot. Don't worry, it's not contagious. <laughs> so that simply means he speaks more than two languages. Uh, Spanish, Italian, Portuguese, French, German, conversant in Bengali, expert in Sanskrit, etc., etc. And he's going to talk to us tonight on the relevance of Advaita Charya in our times. Please take it away and thank you for being with us. Thank Krishna. So first of all, I would like to um, wish all of you a very happy Advaita Acharya Appearance Day. Um, Advaita Acharya is a very important um, figure in our tradition. Um, he appeared about 50 years before Lord Chaitanya according to scholars who are not always reliable, but uh, so that means that Advaita Acharya appeared around 1434. So we can kind of uh, think of what was going on in the world back then for around approximately 1434. 
Um, and he apparently also uh, stayed in this world many years after Lord Chaitanya, who left this world roughly uh, 1533. So Advaita Acharya is recognized as being, in a sense, the really the, the person who, who brought about Lord Chaitanya's descent into this world. I mean, of course, obviously, Krishna makes up his own mind. And also, Advaita Acharya, who is often identified with Mahavishnu, is Krishna himself. So one amazing thing about Advaita Acharya is that he is an example of how the Lord expands himself into different forms, which is something that uh, I don't suggest you try this, you could hurt yourself. But there's that famous statement in the Brahma Sanghita, uh, the Brahma Sanghita, Advaitam. Interestingly, it begins with the word Advaita. Advaita, of course, means uh, duality. It's, it's actually cognate with English words like dual and so on, double. So Advaita, non-dual. In other words, the Lord is absolute, the Lord is one. And there's a famous verse in the Brahma Samhita, Advaitam Achutam Anadim Anantarupam. Um, so I'll, maybe I'll read that because it's, I think it's very relevant. This is Brahma Samhita, chapter five, of course. The entire Brahma Samhita that, that, that we have today is chapter five. And that's uh, text 33. So this verse says that Advaita Machutam Anadim Anantarupam. And uh, for those of you who are interested in Sanskrit, uh, all these words, Advaita Machutam Anadim, end in the letter M. And the reason they end in the letter M is because they are all opposite to, okay, they all are referring to uh, Govindam. When we say Govindam Adi Purusham Tamaham Bajami, uh, just simple Sanskrit, uh, Aham Bajami, I worship Govindam. So Govinda is the object of the verb Bajami, I worship Govinda. And in uh, Sanskrit, in masculine nouns ending in short A, eh? um, when a word is the object of a verb, it ends in M. Uh, so uh, Govindam Adi Purusham. And so the word Advaita, he refers to Govinda also, which is interesting because as we know, Advaita is God and Advaita is not different from Krishna. So um, one last little grammatical thing, and then uh, I'll stop punishing you with this, that uh, in English, we still have this uh, formation in a few surviving words where a word that's the object of a verb ends in an M, and one obvious case that still survives in English is the word whom. Like you say, who are you, but I speak to whom. So when the word who is the object of the verb, you put an M at the end of it, that's, that's Sanskrit. In any case, so let's, let's, let's look at that word or this verse. This is uh, verse 33, Advaitam. So the Lord is non-dual. That means there's only one God. Uh, the good news is we are monotheists. Sometimes devotees get confused about this and think, well, actually, Balaram is God and Krishna is God. They just happen to be different people. But in fact, we are monotheists. We believe in one God because uh, polytheism is just not 
it, it's philosophically a non-starter because if you, first of all, it's not our philosophy. I mean, we're not polytheists. And if you say there are many gods and there's no God, because God means a supreme being. So, so to say, so polytheism in a sense is kind of a pious form of atheism uh, because it's really stating that there is no supreme being. And there is a supreme being, and that is Krishna, who expands in many different forms, one of them being Mahavishnu or Advaita. So Advaita, achutam, and the Lord is infallible. Chuta means a fallen, to fall, to slip. And so the Lord never falls, uh, which is good to know since we're in his hands. There was a popular folk song when I was a kid called He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. So, I mean, we certainly would not want to place ourselves in God's hands and then, whoops, you know, I dropped a few souls there. So, but Krishna is a chutam. Krishna never slips. He never falters. He never falls. He is eternally infallible, literally unfallible. So, so Advaitam achutam, anadim. Krishna has no beginning. No one else causes Krishna to exist, but Krishna causes everyone else to exist. So anadim, uh, so advaitam achutam anadim anantarupam. And here's a key thing which directly relates to Advaita Acharya. And that is the Lord has literally endless forms. The English word end, of course, is from Sanskrit ant or anta, which means end. And so ananta is endless. So the Lord has endless forms. He has endless forms, and yet he's only one supreme Lord. So Advaitam and Chutam and Ananta Rupam, endless forms, Adyam. And the Lord is the origin of everything, as stated in the first verse of Brahma Sangitam, Anadim Adim, Anadi Radhi Govindam. And he is Purana Purusham. A Purana, another word that survives into English, in forms such as Purana, previous, uh, former, and so on. So he's the primeval, also the word prime. So Krishna is uh, Purana Purusham, the ancient person, in the absolute sense of the word ancient, the one who existed from the very beginning and who has always existed, because the word Purana Purusham comes immediately after the word Adyam, which means the origin. So Krishna has always existed, and therefore the word Purana, ancient, uh, or primeval, in, in the case of Krishna, means uh, that he's always existed. Purana, and he's always been a person. It's not that there's something impersonal which becomes a person, which is, frankly, a pretty stupid idea. Because if there was something like an impersonal absolute, how in the world would it become a person? I mean, who's going to do that to the impersonal truth? And how could an impersonal truth do it to itself and why would it do it to i mean it's just the whole thing is just actually preposterous so it's um it, it's pretty much philosophical nonsense so the actual fact here is that krishna is the primeval person uh and he has always existed as the supreme person adyam purana purushang nava jovanam and yet he is a nava yovanam yovana of course from yovana we have the word youth and so on young youth from Sanskrit, Yovanam. So he's in a new youth because um, 
What does that mean, Nava Yovanam? Actually, I mean, we always say it, and we always. I'll be back here. Please, please, whomever has uh, is not muted, please. Okay, safe to go on now? I hope so. Ananda Leela, she'll have to explain that, what just happened. So, I mean, the word Navayovanam, if you think about it, what does it mean to be a new youth? Um, yeah, it's, you could think that Navayovanam, new youth, means unspoiled, not corrupted, uh, a youth who is fresh and, um, yeah, some people kind of are adolescents too long. I mean, some people it stretches well into their middle age period. So Krishna is Nava Yovanam. He's a new youth in the sense that um, he's fresh and alive to life. I mean, and, and he eternally. Because you could think, I mean, you like you could say, like, okay, I've been 17 years old for billions of years, maybe you're getting tired of it. But Krishna, it's like he never gets tired of, it never gets old, his youthfulness. He's ever fresh, Navayovanam. And, and of course, obviously the word Navayovana is directly in contrast to the word Purana Purusham. And so it's something I just noticed, but so you have these two words which are meant to kind of startle you into thinking that Krishna is Purana, but at the same time, he's Navayovanam. He's the most ancient person, and yet he's the newest youth. He's like the fascinating new kid on the block or something. So, so it's very interesting. You, you, you have this contrast of words, Purana, Purusham, and Navayovanam, which is something I actually just noticed after... 53 years of the Hare Krishna movement. So, and then it said, Vedeshu Durlabham. Laba means to get, just to get something, and Durlabha, hard to get. So it's hard to find or hard to get Krishna in the Vedas. And as far as the reason, uh, Krishna himself explains in the Bhagavad Gita the problem with the Vedas. It's interesting because you have these contrasting statements. Krishna says, in 1515, by all the Vedas, I alone am to be known. But then in chapter two, and also in chapter nine, Krishna makes a real critique of the Vedas. He says, for example, to Arjuna, Trigunya Vishaya Veda. Uh, Vishaya means the subject matter in this context. So Krishna says the subject matter, in other words, what the Vedas are about is Trigunya. Uh, life in the three modes of nature. So trigunya is just a way in Sanskrit of saying material life. Because what we call often material or material life, often the word used in, in Sanskrit is something to do with three modes. For example, the way Krishna says transcendental in the Gita, in case you're curious, is uh, he uses the word gunatita, literally gone beyond the gunas. Because to be material, uh, and it's an important distinction because in a sense, the, the Sanskrit is more precise because the word material in English can just mean something that's made out of matter. 
And so if you say I have a material life, it doesn't mean that I, the soul, am made out of matter. Because even in my, let's say, degraded condition, in material, well, I hope I'm not degraded now. I hope I'm just uh, maybe just tolerably imperfect. But but to be to be a conditioned soul is to be immersed in the modes of nature, not to be literally made of matter. In fact, that's the problem that someone thinks they're made of matter. And so therefore, uh, the Krishna uses the word gunatita. Literally, uh, ati is beyond and atita is gone. So gone beyond. If you know any Latin languages, you'll recognize this verb is still there in Spanish, Portuguese, and uh, e, ir, ido. That's just Sanskrit, ita. So, um, of course, sometimes the, the, the adjective prakrita is used to mean material. Like, for example, the Bhagavatam says that a devotee who is just puja-centric, who doesn't really care about other souls, doesn't care about other living beings, just wants to do puja. Krishna says that, or the Bhagavatam says that's a prakrita vakta, literally a materialistic devotee. But in any case, uh, going back to this verse we're looking at, um, so the Vedas are trigunya, vishaya. There's, they, they focus on the three modes of nature. In other words, they focus on material life. And then again, uh, Krishna and then Krishna says, for example, in that same chapter, that Yamimang Pushpitang Vacham Pravadantina Pandita Vedavadarata Partanyarastiti Vadina. He talks about basically those, he's talking about really the Karma Mimangsa people. Because Karma Mimangsa is uh, distinguished by uh, performing Vedic sacrifices to get material goodies. Like if you do this sacrifice, you'll get, and then of course the ultimate collectible. If you're wondering what materially the ultimate collectible is, uh, it's planets. And you see, it's very interesting. And, and so you, for example, in the, in the Mahabharata, when there's this amazing scene where the great King Iyati has gone up to heaven and then he's falling back down because he offended Indra and kind of, you know, used up Kshine Punye, exhausted his piety and he's coming back down. And uh, he falls to this world like a star. It's like a falling star. He comes down to this world. And he actually falls in, in, in an ashram, into an ashram, where some kings are performing Vedic sacrifices. And uh, they it happen to be his descendants. So when they find out who he is, that he's the great Yayati, their forefather, they offer him their planets. Because by these Vedic sacrifices, you it, it's almost like, let's say, you win all kinds of plane tickets, like, like you have a lot of money, you enter some kind of lottery or something, and then you, okay, you win a all expense paid vacation to Hawaii or all expense paid vacation to this or that place. So you, you actually have a stock of these all expenses paid vacations. And so something like that, they actually own planets and not in the sense that they, they've earned an all expense paid, who knows, you know, a million years or something in a particular heavenly planet. So you actually possess these planets in the sense that you have a right to go to them. So, so Krishna talks about this, and he says these flowery words, pushpitang vacham, literally, interesting, like in Spanish, palabras floridas, it's the same grammatically, pushpitang vacham. So where the Vedas sort of entice you, okay, if you're a good boy, if you're a good girl, if you perform all the sacrifices, look what you get. You know, it's sort of like the Vedas are kind of like this catalog of future rewards. 
And so Krishna, of course, rejects this. And he talks about the Vedas as in various places, in chapter two and chapter nine. Also in chapter nine, uh, in chapter nine, Krishna says, um, I'm going up to the heavenly planets and join rewards that come back down. So therefore, you can say like, where's Advaita Acharya in the Vedas or where's Krishna's Vedas? Because the Vedas are focused on material life. That's what Krishna says. In the Gita, and also another point why Advaita Acharya is not in the Vedas is because as Krishna says in chapter four of the Bhagavad Gita, Sakale Neham Hatha but the spiritual science was lost after a great amount of time. So as I'm pointing out my introduction to the Mahabharata that I'm working on now, that the, the oldest reference we have in, in our literature that actually sacred texts can become corrupted over time and don't automatically just survive, it's right there in the Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna tells Arjuna that I taught this to Vivaswan and so on, but the, the text or the, the knowledge became corrupted over time. So the Vedas, first of all, you know, focus on material things and then they can be corrupted over time. So for all these reasons, uh, Krishna came as Lord Chaitanya and Advaita, who is Krishna himself, also came. So anyway, going back to this verse, so Vedeshu Durlavam, it's hard to find Krishna or Advaita Acharya in the Vedas, but Krishna is a Durlavam, not hard to find. It's the opposite, Durlavam and a Durlavam. Atma Bhakto, through literally uh, soul devotion, through soul devotion, Atma Bhakti. In other words, not superficial devotion, but not devotion coming from your mind or from whatever, but devotion is actually coming from the soul itself, Atma Bhakti. And Atma Bhakto just means in soul devotion. In, that's a, actually a nice name, isn't it? Atma Bhakti. It's a good name for future initiations. I get more clients in the future. So it's hard to find Krishna in the Vedas, but it's not hard to find Krishna if you have devotion in your soul, if you have real devotion. And so then, of course, Govinda Madhi Purusha Tamaham Vajami. So, so Dvaita, as explained in this verse of Brahma Sagita is non-different from Krishna. It is Krishna. But, but Advaita, so let's talk about this extraordinary appearance of the Lord as Advaita Acharya. And he was very unhappy about the state of the world. And so if Advaita Acharya was unhappy about the state of the world, you know, maybe 530, 40 years ago, whenever it was, imagine today. Imagine today when there's just sort of like shameless degradation everywhere. I mean, you all know, I mean, I don't need to explain to you what a mess the world is right now. So Advaita was offering Ganga water into Ganga as a way to appeal to the Lord. It's very interesting. And, and this, of course, offering Ganga water into Ganga is a, um, it's a famous example that whatever we can offer to Krishna comes from Krishna himself. Even when Krishna says, patram uh, pushpam falam toyam, patram alif pushpam 
flour, uh, fallen fruit, toyam, or, or water. Yomi bhaktiya prayachati, one who offers me this with devotion. Tadaham bhaktiyupahritam asnami prayatatmanaha. Actually, I have to tell you something here about the Sanskrit, which you may not be aware of, but it's 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 actually fascinating about this famous verse, Patram Pushpam Falam Toyam, which I hope you will not interpret as a deviation from the topic of my lecture today. And that is, Krishna says, Patram Pushpam Falam Toyam, uh, leaf, uh, flower, uh, fruit or water. Yo, one who may to me, Bhaktiya with devotion, prayachati offers. So this is the verb prayachati. This is the verb prayachati. And then Krishna says, Tadaham bhaktiyupahritam, ashnami. I eat or I accept this uh, offering, upahritam. The word upahritam is interesting because upahrita. Hrita, you should know, like Hari, one who takes away our sins or suffering. So Upahrita literally means uh, something which is brought near. Upa means near. Upa means near. And so literally, it's something you bring something near the Lord. You bring it to the Lord. And uh, okay, one more little linguistic thing, which is not going to cost you extra. That uh, upa we still have in English. I, I've explained this. You should know by now that how we still have upa in English. Uh, the word upa, which means near, near in the sense that also not quite the thing itself, but a little below it, but near it, uh, came into English through the Greek, in which they added a silent h and pronounced it upo, upo. And so that is that's anyway that's English hypo like hypothermia, not enough heat, or hypo, this or that. So, so the English prefix hypo is Sanskrit upa. But in any case, so Krishna says, one who brings near to me this offering, Krishna says, I accept it. And he says, prayatatmanaha. And literally, prayatat, so you have to know that prayata, a prayata soul, a prayatatma. And the word prayata is the same word as prayachati just in a different form. And so Krishna, what he's saying is that I accept it from someone who has offered me these things, but in the act of offering me uh, the um, leaf, uh, uh, push, uh, <laughs> the leaf, the flower, the fruit of the water, the first two of the botanic offerings, so the leaf, the flower, the fruit, or the other. Krishna says that in the act of offering these things to me, the person has actually offered their soul. And that's what it means, because prayatatma, prayatatma literally means someone who has offered their own soul. So because it's the same word, prayachati and prayata, prayatatma. And so... Krishna, in a sense, by this brilliant use of language, I mean, I just feel Krishna deserves a standing ovation here. I mean, just for this amazing language that Krishna is saying that, that when you offer something bhaktiya with devotion, 
What that means is that you're really offering yourself. Because as we know, Krishna, you know, there's no fruit shortage in the spiritual world or they don't have, you know, a uh, hydrology issue. They don't need the water. So, so the, real issue, the real point is that the fruit, the leaf, the water, the flower, it's a way for a devotee to offer their own soul. And so when Krishna says, I accept it, he's actually accepting you. He's accepting your soul also. Because think of it, if Krishna accepted the leaf and left you behind, that wouldn't help, would it? So, so when Krishna says, Ashnami, I accept it, he's actually accepting you. He's accepting your soul. Because you offered your soul through the, you could say, the gesture of offering uh, a leaf, fruit, flower, water. So, um, so Advaita Acharya, in that sense, he's offering the Ganges water unto the Ganges because there's just nothing else available to offer to Krishna except something that already is Krishna's energy. There's just nothing else in the catalog. You know, it's just like Krishna says, it's just like Krishna says at the, in the last, that amazing verse, the end of chapter 10 of the Bhagavad Gita, where he identifies himself with so many extraordinary features of this world. And then Krishna says, vibhuti uh, whatever existence is vibhuti mat. Mat is just another form of vat, like Bhagavad, it means possessing. So whatever possesses vibhuti, which means extraordinary existence, beautiful or opulent, urjitam, powerful, or whatever, tattareva. Tattareva in Sanskrit really literally means like in each and every case. So tattareva avagachatvam, understand in each and every case of all the great things of this world. And avagacha is interesting because avagacha means understand, literally means go deep into it. Because ava means down or deep, and, and uh, gacha means go. So this verb, which means to understand, ava gum is the root. Ava gacha ti, one understands, or ava gacha, understand. It literally means go deep into it. And, and that's one of the many words for understand. So tatadev, in each and every case, ava gacha twang, you understand deeply, go deeply into it, that it is mama sambhavam. It is something which simply was produced from mama teja, my splendor, my glory, my power. So therefore, um, there really isn't any paraphernalia available within or outside the universe to offer to Krishna, except something that already belongs to him. But, you know, it's the thought that counts from Krishna's point of view. And so Advaita Acharya, is um, showing this because when you offer Ganges water to the Ganges, it's like any fool can see that you're offering to someone something they already possessed. And so offering Ganges water into the Ganges is just a very obvious, clear example that whatever we offer ultimately already belongs to Krishna and ultimately goes to Krishna.
because Ganga Devi herself is an eternal servant of Krishna. So ultimately, the philosophical point is uh, that we offer to Krishna what is already Krishna's. And um, so it's, there's so much going on here, I mean, it's, it's spiritually. So Advaita Acharya threatened, of course, to destroy the universe, and he definitely caught Krishna's attention with that threat. And so it's interesting because um, there's that famous verse in the, in the Bhagavatam, the four essential, one of the four essential Bhagavatam verses, which uh, you know those four essential Bhagavatam verses? You all know that, right? Of course you do. You're just being shy and humble. Okay, with that, in this case, rite uh, means without. So that, by the way, for any of you, uh, that is verse 2934. Uh, which I want to pull up because it's actually related to 2934. Um, Rateyartam, which literally means without meaning. Artha uh, in Sanskrit is meaning, value, because the mean of something, it's value. It also means money, you know, value, both of the valores. So, so all that's, so it means purpose, meaning. Value. So to say, Rateyar Tam, and, and again, that's a Bhagavatam verse 2934, means without meaning, without value. It has no sense. It doesn't, uh, it has, uh, it has no purpose. Rateyar Yat Pratiyeta, whatever may appear to be real. Without going into all the grammar there. Um, actually, I will say a word because. This is a very interesting Sanskrit verb. So if you can just hang in there and uh, hope you can tolerate a very interesting Sanskrit verb. Uh, e in Sanskrit means to go. And we still have that in the Latin languages, ir, to go. And all in Spanish, if you know Spanish, the R in ear is just the infinitive marker. The actual verb is e, which is pure Sanskrit. So, and prati means against or counter, it's like the English word, like a, like a countermeasure in Sanskrit would be pratikara. And it means other things, but I'll leave you with that for now. So um, so to go counter, to go against, like for example, in, in Ashtanga Yoga, uh, I think it's uh, Anga number five is uh, pratyahara, yama niyama, asana, no, it's number four, pratyahara which I can't believe I missed that since I practice Stunga yoga every day. Anyway, so ahara means like taking, bringing, it's, a, it's like taking. So pratyahara means counter taking, which means that normally we're trying, our senses are going out to enjoy things in the world. So when you reverse the direction of your senses, so the senses, instead of, instead of going out into the world to enjoy, the senses reverse their direction and come within. That's called pratyahara. So, so the word, the verb prati, prati, to go counter, it literally means that that sense objects are, are uh, coming up against you. It's like if you think about them, it's a very interesting word. Like let's say you see something, 
you see a visible object. What's happening is that that object visually is just sort of coming up against your senses when you hear something. And therefore, that verb literally like to, to come up against, literally to come up against, uh, comes to mean perception. It's a verb. That's one of the ways you can say perceive in Sanskrit. And so when Krishna says, jet pratiyeta, then let's see how does Prabhupada translate the word here. Uh, appears to be, whatever appears to be. In other words, literally whatever sense object comes up against your senses. And so it appears to be there, but the Bhagavatam says it actually has no meaning. It actually has no real meaning. It's, it has no real value. It has no real purpose. It's not, it's not what you think it is. So, if it has no value, no purpose, no meaning, if, if it appears to you as being not within God, within the soul. In other words, if you see anything and that appears to be real, but you don't see it within Krishna, then what you're seeing is just an illusion. So let's say you look at a house, you see a house. Well, the house is really there. But what you're seeing, to be more specific, what you're seeing is a house without Krishna. There's no such thing as a house that's not within Krishna. There is no such thing. The house exists, and Krishna exists, but a house that is not within God actually doesn't exist. There's no such thing as that. And so, therefore, uh, it has no real meaning. And so Krishna says, Know that to be my illusory energy. Which is very interesting. I mean, if you really think, what does this mean? Just like, just like a reflection, just like darkness. So what does it actually mean? You know, just like a reflection, just like darkness. So in the perp in his uh, translation, Prabhupada says that reflection which appears to be in darkness. In other words, when you see a mere reflection in darkness, you're not seeing the actual object. By the way, this corresponds precisely, happily, to one of the perhaps the most famous uh, metaphor for illusion in all Western philosophy, which is for a free plate of Mahaprasadam. Does anyone know it? No. Okay, I get the Prasadam. No. Plato's cave. Plato's cave. The idea is Plato, because Plato, I mean, Bach to Plato, he, uh, he's, um, yeah, Plato had a lot of things, right? So like, for example, this world's a perverted reflection of the eternal perfect world. So in Plato's cave, um, there are some people in a cave, and they're tied up in the cave. And, uh, and by the way, that's, an, that's a metaphor in our literature. This world's like a cave. And um, they're tied up in that cave in such a way that they can only look forward. They can't look to the side. They can't look behind them. And so first thing, cave, Vedic analogy, tied up, bound, a, a, a um, you know, which is the word used for conditioned soul in Sanskrit, literally a bound soul, buddha. And there is a fire behind them. So the real light is behind them. They can't see it. And this fire is casting shadows on the cave wall. 
So all they're seeing are shadows of reality. Another Vedic analogy, Chaiva Bhuvanani Viparti Durga, in the Brahma Sangita, that Maya acting like a shadow casts false images in this world, Chaya, shadow. So, so they're just seeing all these false, all these, these shadows, these dark images and shadows. They're not seeing the real objects. And then, of course, if one, if someone manages to rise and, and escape this cave, they go out into the real sunlight. And again, sun is a symbol of God, also Vedic. Anyway, so, so Jita Vaso, Jita Tama, is very much like Plato's cave, that we're just seeing false images and darkness. We're not seeing the real objects. So uh, that's that verse. So Advaita Acharya uh, came to save us. And so we should, uh, to say the least, be grateful because there is a great personality who is an expansion of the Supreme Lord, and he cares about us. He actually cares about us. He came to this world to save us. And he was so anxious for us to be saved that he, um, you know, he kind of made this threat to Lord Chaitanya, to Krishna, that if you don't come, I'm just going to wrap up this thing. So, and then Krishna came as Lord Chaitanya, and here we are. You know, here we are. We are living proof of the mercy of Advaita Acharya. And also another great thing about Advaita Acharya, an example he's setting, he was actually much older, I mean, in terms of external superficial calculation. There, he was much older than Lord Chaitanya, and yet he's famous for really just surrendering to Lord Chaitanya and accepting someone who externally was much younger than him, but accepting that person as his Lord. And of course, Advaita Acharya, as many amazing pastimes with Lord Nityananda. It's funny how the, uh, the non-devotional scholars just can't quite get it right. So I was just looking over a famous uh, academic book on Advaita Acharya, and they were saying how it appears from, you know, what we can understand that uh, Advaita and Nityananda were rivals and their followers were rivals, but no, that's completely wrong. Actually, Advaita and Nityananda are both just different forms of Krishna. And they were having wonderful, wonderful, often hilarious pastimes together. So Advaita Acharya, uh, who saved all of us, an amazing personality who lived most of his life in Shantipur, Peace Village, actually. Shantipur or Peaceville, you know, it's poor is kind of like, by the way, the Sanskrit word poor, as you know, we still have in English, right? You all know that? Like Puri, Pura. It came through Greek, just changed the R to L. As you know, if you know, like some Spanish, I mean, Chinese or speakers pronounce Hare Krishna. So it's what you find is that there is, I won't go into all the linguistics, I'll spare you all the technical details, but R and L sometimes tend to go back and forth. Like, for example, Prahlad Maharaj or Prahrad Maharaj is one famous example in the Bhagavatam, R and L. Or the Sanskrit verb chalati, he moves, or charati, he or she moves. So anyway, R and L have like this sort of special phonetic relationship. And so if you take pura and change the R to L, you get the Greek polis, which means city, from which you get words like political and uh, police, and all those words, political, police, and everything. Those are obviously just Sanskrit pura. Anyway. So Krishna, I mean Lord, I mean Advaita Acharya, 
lived in uh, Shantipura. Shantipur and um, Peaceville. And um, a great, amazing personality, so attractive, so merciful, just, just a, a fascinating, all attractive personality of Godhead. And I, I wish we knew more about him. I mean, he's like this grandfatherly figure because, of course, he's much older than Lord Chaitanya. So just... Uh, we are so fortunate, we are inconceivably fortunate that when Krishna comes to this world, he like, he, he's literally a one-man army, you know, Chaitanya, Nityananda, Advaita. And so, so all these amazing personalities of Godhead came with him, and we are extremely fortunate, I mean, infinitely blessed and fortunate that uh, Krishna came as Advaita Charya to, to save us. So I'll stop there. If there are any questions. I have a question. How um, you said the relevance of Advaita Charya in our times, which is the title of your lecture. Um, how, uh, besides seeing everything as Krishna's property and offering it back to him, and offering our soul, uh, devotion. What, what other relevant points are there? Uh, how, and how is Advaita Charya's example is relevant to us nowadays? How, what more can we extract? Oh, what's more? Well, I did mention a few things that we should not be proud. That'll be the day. Anyway, we should not be proud. And there is Advaita Charya's wonderful example of serving Lord Chaitanya and having these just extraordinary, relishable dealings with Nityananda. And uh, so Lord, Lord Advaita Charya is setting a perfect example of how pure Vaishnavas, in this case, of course, Krishna, but taking the role of pure Vaishnavas, how they interact with each other, being very merciful, uh, desiring more than anything that Krishna give his mercy to the fallen people of this age and uh, just being super lovable. I mean, Dvaita Charya is just, is just a very lovable manifestation of Krishna. So if there's no other questions. I have one question, Maharaj. Yes, please. My name is uh, Mathura Lileshwari. I'm a family friend of Pavani Devi Dasi and Madhavi. Devi oh, Dasi you, can we see you? Do you is your yeah, I'm actually not well now. Oh, oh, there you are. Yes. Um, yes, Maharaj. So really nice to hear your class today. Um, and I just wanted to ask you about how you were saying when we are offering ourselves to, uh, uh, when you're offering anything to Krishna, Patram Pushpam Falam Toyam, what we are really offering is ourselves, is our devotion. So how do we uh, practice that in reality? Because, you know, often we are just told that, oh, we have to do this, you know, in order to be a good devotee, in order to go back to Godhead. You know, there's always a reward attached 
to you know uh, the service that we do. If we don't do this, this is going to happen. If we do this, this will happen. So how do we uh, separate ourselves from that and become more selfless uh, in service? Thank you, Maharaj. Thank you. Very interesting question. Yeah, that's um, definitely there's this paradox. Oh, you, you can keep your video on. We can talk to each other. Devotees are so shy, my God. I mean, they probably get it from me because I'm... Uh, as it's very well known that I'm very shy, but um, so I, I wouldn't would, be so shy if I had my makeup on, Maharaj. <laughs> well, actually, I don't either. So you know, we're kind of in the same boat here. I don't even have my you know male cudgel. So, <laughs> so it's kind of it's kind of like this paradox, and I mean, there's no doubt that the great souls in the beginning resort to bribery. Just like, for example, Prabhupada, he cooked such wonderful prasadam for all the, you know, the poor fallen souls in New York. Or, and, and Krishna himself says, Krishna himself says that, you know, those who act in goodness will be happy. So Krishna and his great devotees, they meet us where we're at. Because right now we are sort of irrepressibly self-interested. And so to tell someone who's attached to their own benefit in so many ways, give all that up. Don't think about yourself. Just love the Lord. I mean, good luck. So appealing to people's rational self-interest. Like, look, you want your self-interest. You want to be happy. You want a good life. You want to live forever. Okay, don't be a dummy. You know, this is how you can get these things. This is how you can get these things. And then if someone, you know, accepts that, then in the process of, let's say, pursuing happiness, even in Krishna consciousness, then you come to realize that real happiness is, is just loving Krishna. I mean, Krishna says it right in the Gita. Chaturvita bhajante mang. Four kinds of people approach me. And Artha, one, a person who's suffering. Artha, that's without the H. Artha means someone who's suffering. Artha Jigyasur, um, the curious person. Artha Arti, the one who's seeking wealth. And Jnani Jabharatarsa. So out of all of them, Krishna, I mean, the first three kind of have their own interest because even curiosity, it's like, like someone will come up to us sometimes and say, tell me about your movement. And you tell them, so would you like to come to our temple? No, nah, I was just curious. So, so curiosity itself is not a selfless desire because you want, you want to satisfy your curiosity. And then if you're suffering, you want to, or you want money. So and that's why Krishna says, Teshan Gyani, of, of these, it's the Gyani who's really the great soul. Because the jnani, then Krishna follows up, you know, in the bahunam, janmanam, ante, and so on. So, um, you know, what else can you do? You, you have to deal with people where they're at. And then they'll gradually come to understand. For example, you know, when I was a kid, I think many of us, when we were kids, we saw our parents as just kind of like, you know, product delivery systems. 
I mean, you love your parents and all that. You're attached to your parents, but, you know, they feed you and they take you here and they take you there and they, they do everything for you. And then as you get older, if you're, if you're, you know, not a complete jerk, as you get older, then you really come to love your parents. You come to really appreciate them and see them not simply as, you know, they're, they're supposed to serve me, but you really love them for themselves, not just because you don't need anything from them at a certain point. A little trust fund doesn't hurt. But anyway, um, so in that sense, you know, Krishna is the supreme parent. Krishna is the supreme parent. And the evolution, the development of our love for Krishna is very analogous to our experience with our parents. So. Thank you very much. I think the parent analogy really, uh, you know, made it even more clearer for me because I am a parent of a four-year-old. Oh, and yeah. I have parents, older parents, so I can really relate to that. And yeah, I think you're right. You know, it's just an evolution. It's a gradual process. So we just have to take it as it comes, I guess. But knowledge yeah. is really helpful. And, and then if someone, because the, the difference between the jigyasu and the jnani, mm -hmm. the jigyasu, it's a you know particular form of the verb. And um, it means that you want something, you want knowledge. Where the jnani, doesn't want anything. The jnani just knows. And what's the result of that knowledge? Krishna explains right after that, that bahunam jamanamante, jnanavan mam prapati. When you really get it, you surrender to Krishna. So if I don't surrender to Krishna, I didn't really get it yet. You can't really understand Krishna and not surrender. If you don't surrender, you didn't get it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Maharaj. My pleasure. Anytime. <laughs> Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Do you see? Do you see some hands raised uh, virtually? Oh, um, you can address each one personally. Yeah, I, I don't see the raised hands. Let's see. Me, I'll go back to the first page. Oh, there are the hands. Navakishora. Oh, na uh, what's that? is next. Shora. You yeah. actually shortened the first vowel of his name. Sorry. Yes, Navakashora. Hi, Krishna Maharaj. Uh, it's Hare wonderful Krishna. to see you, and thank you for uh, sharing this time with us this evening to talk about Advaita Acharya. Uh, I've heard you mention before about how uh, in the beginning of the movement, the Hare Krishna uh, temples or, or movement in general was contacted by um, reporters to ask about their opinions uh, on various uh like modern day topics. And so could you talk a little bit about um, like if we were to explain something like a festival happening today for, you know, in the parents of Advaita Acharya or just uh, a little bit about how we take principles of bhakti and uh, relate them to things going on in the world. Because uh, sometimes it, the way we present our philosophy, it seems to be like a stark difference that, that we focus on worshiping Krishna, we chant, we, um, we do things, you know, associated with the temple and the things that are outside the temple are, you know, are temporary things related to the material nature. And so what would you say in terms of um, relevance and Advaita Charya in that respect in terms of community engagement? Okay. 
Yeah, thank you. Um, first of all, um, people, it used to be that whenever there was some issue going on in the country that had anything at all to do with morality or religion, that uh, the press would approach us because we were relevant, because you know we were all over the place. And so we're not perceived at the present time as being as relevant as we once were, which we should try to correct. But in any case, um, philosophy. You know, when I joined the movement, that was our, you know, pride and joy that, you know, we're, we're a philosophy, we're not just a sectarian religion. But if we, I mean, if we present things, for, for example, Krishna, the fact that Krishna is God, or the fact that Krishna is blue, among other colors, he comes in many designer colors, but, you know, the most prominent is, is blue. So, um, so philosophically, what does that mean? I mean, because it gets into the whole philosophical point where if God is a specific color, I mean, obviously he has infinite form, so he's all colors, but, but if Krishna is a specific color, then how is he still infinite? How can you be infinite and specific at the same time? Because to be specific is this and not that. So it's not just a question of saying Krishna is blue. It's a question of raising the philosophical question. How can the universal also be specific? And that gets into philosophy. And so I think uh, there's really a crying need to use a somewhat older expression. There's a real need to um, sort of philosophize the Hare Krishna movement. <clears throat> because I've noticed, frankly, I don't want to be unkind to anyone here, but sometimes even when I have discussions with very senior people in very senior positions, thing it's, it's like things are not always approached in a real philosophical way. I mean, it's not that we all have to be technical philosophers, but it depends on how we present things. For example, I mean, we all love the deities. The deities are, you know, they keep us all alive spiritually, but our movement is not puja-centric. Oh, there's a jita. Is that a jita that just came in? Hey, jita. I did invite him, so it's possible. Yeah, good old Ajita from Oz. So, um, what is our understanding of Krishna? I sometimes say that, you know, anyway, I'll be positive and nice and sweet here. But I think that the one thing the world is going to accept from us is not, you know, just some sectarian movement. Hey, Ajita, turn your camera on if you have it. This is a handsome young man. That um, the one thing I believe the Western world will accept from us is a spiritual science. Why do people accept whatever science it may be, you know, geography or, or physics? Why do people accept it all around the world? Because it's science. Science is not American. Science is not Bulgarian. Science is not Bolivian. Science is not German. Science is not Russian. It's science. And so the extent to which, in my very humble opinion, the extent to which we present ourselves in an extremely ethnic way, in an extremely ethnic way, in a way which just screams to people that this is really from one specific part of the world, um, I think it's, it's hard for people to make the curve and think, that this is a non-sectarian, 
non-ethnic, non-partisan, just universal spiritual science. So um, I think the more we focus on knowledge, Krishna himself says in the Bhagavad Gita, you know, here's, you want a real irony? I'll give you an irony. Uh, one of the, you know, one of the most often quoted, perhaps the most oft quoted verse in Bhagavad Gita is, is was it 434, Tad Pranipatena, that uh, learn the truth from, you know, the great souls who have knowledge. Everyone knows that verse, right? What about the verse before that? Because as I often say, uh, as I often say, that verse 434 in the Gita begins, Tadvidhi, know that, or literally that, know, know that. So when a verse begins, know that, what is that? If you begin a sentence, know that, what are you talking about? So if you want to know what that is, you have to go to the previous verse. And the previous verse says that... Um, that more important than simply worshiping Krishna through paraphernalia, offering things, more important than that, better than that, is the sacrifice of knowledge, which means that you dedicate yourself to understanding Krishna in a very intelligent, objective way, and then you dedicate yourself to giving that knowledge to others. Actually, when Prabhupada made me the GBC of Latin America in 1974, and a day later I was in his room with him, and he said to me, don't focus just on, I mean, this is not an anti-puja rant, because as I said, we all love the deities, we all need the deities. Gita Nagari has some of the most famous deities in the world. My point is not, this is not an anti-deity, demonic thing I'm saying. But Prabhupada said to me, that most important is knowledge. He said, for the, you know, for the more advanced devotees, you have to focus on knowledge. So the more we are and become known as spiritual scientists, it's not about some ethnic tradition. It's not just about rituals. It's about perfect knowledge. And the more we can demonstrate to people, this is really the highest knowledge. Not just because we say so, not just because it's written in some book they don't accept anyway. So that's a non-starter. But the more we can actually show people reasonably that this is the highest knowledge, the more ISKCON will fulfill its real destiny. So. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. So uh, Sahadeva does. Hare Krishna Maharaj. Hare Krishna. I'm so fortunate to hear from you tonight. I have two humble requests. Yes. And the first request is, if possible, if you could share uh, a link with us that some of us could be following you on Zoom, like Zoom oh. lecture. Ananda Leela is here. And she knows much more about that than I do. Okay. So if you, I can put, um, Ananda Leela, are you still there? Yeah, she's still here. Could you put on the chat where they should write to get all that information? 
Yeah, and under Leela, she, she's the only one on earth that actually knows where all that stuff is. <laughs> okay. Okay, thank you. And the second humble request is, I mean, please uh, just share if you find it convenient. And that is, uh, Sri Prabhupada often, I mean, it's oftentimes that I heard that he said a couple of times that he reads his own books because he did not write them. Krishna dictated to him. Yeah. Especially, especially the Bhagavatams. Yes. So my question, I would say a question. Uh, my request is if possible, you share with us because volumes, sorry, cantos 11 and 12 yes. were not written by Sri Prabhupada. It was written by his disciples. So how it feels writing these amazing uh, cantos. If Thank you can you. share with us. Right, yeah, yeah, of course. Thank you very much. First of all, uh, the point of Prabhupada writing the book, or Prabhupada didn't write it, Krishna did, is misunderstood. Uh, I wrote a paper recently, uh, which Ananda Leela can also send you for a, uh, you know, for a lavish donation. Just kidding, just send it for free in which I give many, many quotations from Prabhupada, where Prabhupada says, I wrote these books. These are my books. I wrote these books. And so when the idea that Prabhupada was simply a vehicle that, you know, like there's, there's no Prabhupada in his books, it's all Krishna, is actually a misunderstanding. Krishna absolutely inspired and empowered Prabhupada. There's no question about that. I mean, no one's books are as powerful as Prabhupada's books. And... And Krishna greatly empowered Prabhupada and greatly inspired him. But it was Prabhupada empowered and inspired by Krishna who wrote the books, according to Prabhupada. As far as, as, far as my own feelings, um, to be honest, because I actually did, I mean, just to get the history straight, I did all the purports in the... Um, um, that we did, not probably in the 10th, 11th, 12th canto, except the last 10 chapters of the 10th canto, which I asked Gopi Pranantana to do as a way of, you know, gratitude for all his service. But so my attitude really was, I just work here. I, because I, I really felt that it's all Prabhupada, it's all Krishna. And, um, and I, I really felt that I was just a humble servant and, you know, what, if anything is coming out right here, it's just Krishna's mercy. So, uh, yeah, I felt, I feel, and I do, I felt, and I do feel very, very fortunate. It was just Krishna somehow or other that gave me that service. So, uh, does that say Queenie? Nguyen? That's what yeah. it says. Yes, Queenie. Queenie. So, uh, hey. Hare Krishna Maharaj, please accept my humble basis as so Hare Krishna. So far. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well, thank you, Maharaj. Uh, I'm actually, oh yeah, I am a resident of Gita Nagri. And um, yeah, so I, um, I really admire your, all your explanation in, um, in about Sanskrit in translation and how to deeply understand it. And uh, I was curious because 
then if Sanskrit is so clear, then why impersonalists interpret Bhagavad Gita in different ways? And why other people interpret these Sanskrit words in different ways? And uh, I think I have read somewhere that um, only Sri Prabhupada explained bhakti as devotional service, but other um, people would, I mean, not in our movement, would interpret bhakti yoga as something else. And so um, how do we sort of understand this? Thank you, Maras. Thank you. Where, where are you from? Um, I'm from Vietnam, Maras. Oh, very interesting. Recently, I watched some documentaries on Vietnam. You know, they showed all different parts of the country. So, oh, wow. so regarding your question, um, regarding your question, I'm tempted to say regarding impersonalists, damn fools. I mean, it's, because if if you look at the Sanskrit, it's absolutely clear. I mean, there's, there's, I mean, the Sanskrit is absolutely unambiguous, not esoteric. One of the wonderful things about the Bhagavad Gita, the Sanskrit is so beautiful. That's why I wanted to do a literal translation that, you know, in that book I did, because I just, the Sanskrit is so beautiful and so elegant and so simple and clear. And um, the impersonalists, they just, um, they really, um, get everything wrong because they have crazy philosophies of language. If you just take, in, in Sanskrit, there, there are two words, which are parokshavada and uh, aparokshavada, which is, um, in English, would be something like esoteric and exoteric language. Vada means just language or speech. And so, and aksha, aksha is like the eye, or it also means sight or vision. And so paroksha literally means seeing what is not really right in front of you. Because para means like beyond. So you're seeing something that's not really right in front of you. So paroksha, which is again, often translated from Sanskrit as esoteric. And so paroksha vada means that you are using language, which is not really as, as you know, Western philosophers might say, the surface grammar. It's not really, it's not right there. It's not what the words actually mean. And then aparokshavada means exoteric. In other words, like exo, like something that's right there in front of you. So basically the impersonalists or other people have to come up with all these kind of crazy philosophies of language, which are not in the Gita itself. So that right there is very dangerous because you're applying to the Gita a philosophy of language, which is not in the Gita. And Krishna, and, and, and not only that, if you look at the dialogue between Krishna and Arjuna, one thing which is obvious is that Krishna and Arjuna are both assuming that the other person means what they say. In other words, Arjuna assumes that Krishna is speaking straightforwardly, not esoterically. And in fact, the proof of that is, is that when, when Arjuna thinks that Krishna is speaking paradoxically or there's some contradiction, 
He doesn't say, that is so cool, Krishna. You're using like this really like, you know, magical, mystic language. No. He says, what the hell is going on? Because Arjuna says, Vyami Sreneva Vakyena. He says, by this Vakya, Vakyena, by this speech, which is Vyamishra, it's mixed up. So when our, he says, first you said this, now you're saying that. So Arjun doesn't think, cool, Krishna, esoteric. No, he says, could you please get your act together? So, so we know just from Arjun's response that Arjun expects and even demands of Krishna that he be straightforward and not esoteric. And Krishna, in speaking to Arjun, tells him, I already told you this, Arjuna. I already explained this to you. You weren't paying attention. So it, if just if you look at the way Krishna and Arjun talk to each other, both of them assume and demand that the other person not be esoteric, not be paradoxical, but simply speak straightforwardly. So therefore, if some person comes along and wants to interpret the Gita in that way, it, they're just not paying attention. The person just has no clue what's really going on in the Bhagavad Gita. And if you look at what the words actually mean, I'm talking about the primary dictionary meanings of all the Sanskrit words in the Bhagavad Gita. It is absolutely impossible to come to an impersonal conclusion unless you're just being intentionally obnoxious. So that's... In my own humble way, that's what I would say. Thank you so much, Maharaj. And I really, really appreciate your time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. <laughs> Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. So, Yashodamai. Hare Bo Maharaj. It's so nice to actually see you um, live rather than watching your YouTube representation. So... Very well, nice. I, thank you. It's nice, nice to see you. <laughs> um, I have two questions. Um, and I know you've, you touch on this. Um, I've heard you speak on this before, but you, you were quoting from 436 and you were talking about the need for us to be more educated and more philosophical in, yeah. our, in, our, in, in our experience with, you know, with others when we're preaching to others, which means that our focus should be on education. So the first, the first point is, but our focus actually as a movement is not on education because I, I always hear about this temple being built and that temple being built, but I never really hear about high schools being built or you know, universities being built or sec, you know, secondary schools being built or whatever. So oh my God, oh my God, a soulmate. I mean, you know, you are so preaching to the choir. That's exactly what, that, I, I mean, I hope you don't think I stole your lines. But I do oh, no, actually no. say exactly the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But this is something that I've been thinking about too, because I've, I've been thinking about that and talking about that with people, about why is our focus not on education? But the other thought that comes to me is what that, what that feels like is that we're actually, if we're not educating people and we're not asking them to question things and to, and to um, you know, be thoughtful and, and critical about everything, then what we're breeding is a generation of, of conformists, people that are just going with the flow of things, not asking questions, not trying to um, cause waves. And even though in that 
verse that you quoted, it says to approach a you know, spiritual master and question them. So, but we're not really questioning. We're not really being trained to think critically and to question and to analyze. We're just being, and, and devotees that do stand up and question and like make waves, I tend to like uh, push the side. Uh, they're not invited to, to boards or meetings or, you know, to, to I, make I, any- I think I noticed that once or twice in my life. <laughs> okay, so. So, so I think- so What do we do about it? That's okay, very, very good. I mean, amazing. You may think she's a plant, you know, that I put her there to ask that. Because Your check so is in the mail, Maharaj. <laughs> What's that? Your check, check is in the mail. <laughs> okay, first thing, just a little detail. It's actually uh, verse 433 and 434. Okay. Um, and, and the word question is actually pari prashnena. Pari is, of course, English peri, like perimeter. And so on, peri means around, perimeter. Uh, Peri, you know, perimeter is just Sanskrit parimatra. So, so periprasna means asking all around. It's sort of a way in Sanskrit of saying thorough questioning. In other words, asking all around and all points, periprasna. So, wow, it's uh, amazing. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I'm going to dive into this. And, you know, the worst that can happen is that I'll offend, you know, many leaders and be expelled from the Hare Krishna movement. But, you know. That's life. So, um, and join the rest of us. <laughs> okay. The first thing I want to, you know, I, I've said many times that um, ISKCON you know, is sort of becoming the religion I left to join ISKCON. And one thing we have to keep in mind, in my view, let me put it this way. I think it's a big mistake in our analysis to assume that there's something sort of supernaturally clueless about Hare Krishna devotees. And that, um, you know, like we sort of have this amazing propensity not to get things right. So when I look at all these things you mentioned and things I've mentioned many times, they are so typical of humans. They're so typical of the history of religion. And I'd like to refer here to really get to the bottom of this, like what's really going on? This, you know, where ISKCON for every dollar it spends to educate our own children, you know, ISKCON probably spends a thousand dollars to perform rituals. <clears throat> so um, I attended a lecture one time at the Harvard Divinity School when I was, I was a student at a different school arts and sciences, that was like little snobbery. You know, I wasn't in the divinity school, I was in the graduate school of arts and sciences. But anyway, so um, I, there's, there's really a really nice professor, nice guy, and he said something which I never forgot, which really changed the way I understand Disco. And that is, he, he was talking about the Christian world. He was a Brooklyn Italian guy, this Harvard divinity professor, so really nice guy. So he was saying that in the whole Christian universe, like. Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, Coptic, you know, everything. Then the whole Christian world, he said, basically there's two kinds of people. There are people who just sort of have, I guess the crude term would be blind faith. Not particularly inquisitive, not intellectual, just kind of like, you know, this is what our teacher said and this is what the Shastra scripture said. And then he said, there are people who also have faith and they have devotion, but they need a rational understanding. 
They need a rational understanding. And then, and then, and then he said, and this really struck me, he said, there's no indication that these two groups will ever come together. <clears throat> and so I take it as simply a fact of human life that most people that belong to a particular religion are not philosophical, uh, are not, you could say, in, 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 a, um, in an acceptable sense, critical, and are not very philosophical. I mean, consider this. When Prabhupada was here, you may watch all these, you know, Hare Krishna movies, and it looks like everyone is just jumping out of their skin with ecstatic love for Prabhupada. But meanwhile, on the ground, the fact was that with all his power, Prabhupada could not get his own disciples to read his books. Prabhupada could not get his, I mean, some of us did. I read the books as soon as they came out. You know, the same enthusiasm that I used to listen to every new Beatle album that came out, you know, when I was at Berkeley. So, so you know, I, I even compared to that because, like, you know, like whenever a new Beatle album came out, it was like, you know, big thing. And so when Prabhupada's books, obviously Prabhupada's books are much, are infinitely more important ultimately than Beatle albums. So, so, I eat among the leaders. I mean, it's frankly, it's not that easy to engage a lot of the leaders of ISKCON in a philosophical discussion. I don't mean to say they're not good people or not good devotees or not, I mean, they're devoting their lives. But in general, ISKCON is not an extremely philosophical movement. You know, it's interesting because, it's interesting because, um, I don't, I'm not blaming anyone here, but when you when you buy a standard textbook on Hinduism, I mean, if you just take a course on world religions or on religions of India, I mean, one thing they'll always say, always, every textbook, whether it's written by a Western person or a Hindu, is that in Hinduism, the emphasis is on orthopraxis, not orthodoxy. Ortho means correct or straight, like orthodontics means getting your teeth straight. So, so that's what ortho means. Just think orthodontics. And praxis, of course, means practice. And uh, doxy uh, means belief or understanding. So orthodoxy literally means correct understanding. And orthopraxis means like you get the rituals right. No, you fool, don't offer the handkerchief until you offer the ghee lamp. You know, that's... Um, <laughs> And also it includes things that are actually more important, like, for example, following the four regular principles. So following the four principles, that's orthopraxis or chanting rounds or taking your shoes off before you go in a temple. That's all orthopraxis. Understanding the philosophy is orthodoxy. And Hinduism is famous. I mean, every Hinduism, you know, introduction to Hinduism book ever written says Hindus don't care very much about orthodoxy, they care about orthopraxis. So you go to a typical home program, let's say people from a Hindu background, and when they're, they got all the you know, little lights on the, on the plate and they're offering it, and everyone's touching the light, giving a little donation, 
Everyone knows what to do. So no one is at all confused about what you're supposed to do with the, with the little lights or the candles. However, if you sat down with that same group of people and said, okay, what's your philosophy? Watch out. And so I, I think it's a really important issue. I'm not blaming anyone. I mean, it's just, it's just a, it's, it's a demographic fact today that most of the people in the Hare Krishna movement come from an Indian background. A majority of the members of the Hare Krishna movement come from an Indian background. It's also a fact that most of the Western centers are financially dependent on people from an Indian background. And lest, I mean, since some people will uh, be waiting in line to misunderstand me, I want to make it very clear, I'm not criticizing anyone. I'm not blaming anyone for anything. It has nothing to do with that. I'm simply, I hope it's still possible in the movement that has the highest philosophy to engage in objective analysis without being canceled. I mean, I hope ISKCON is not just, you know, controlled by idiotic cancel culture so that we can still have rational discussions. But, but I think it is very significant that in most of the Hare Krishna movement, in most of the Hare Krishna movement, I would say, most of the Hare Krishna movement is puja-centric. It's about building big temples. It's about performing beautiful worship, which, you know, I love temples as much as anyone, but that's really the center. Prabhupada made it clear that his temples were meant to be knowledge-centric. As in Prabhupada's words, you know, we, we have these temples, so we can go out and drop the bombs of these books. Somewhat uh, militant metaphor there, but I mean, we, we appreciate it. So, so therefore, we have to see, I think we have to take a step back as historians, as social scientists, and, and see what's really going on. What's really going on? What is this con becoming? And uh, so if you put all the factors together, it's not like surprising what we're seeing. And since I think many leaders really operate with the philosophy, don't bite the hand that feeds you. I'll give you one simple example. When I was teaching at the University of Florida, 19, I think it was 08 and 09, and around that time, I became very controversial, shockingly atypical for me, because I'm usually kind of the guy hiding in the back that, you know, never is never controversial. Okay, joke. So at that time, I came out with a statement. Don't worry, Leela, I'm not going to, you know, do the really bad stuff. Don't worry, you won't. <laughs> my, my, my handler is watching. So... <laughs> It was um, basically, and actually Sarvama was involved in that. I mean, I'll tell the story very quickly. There was a there was a gay couple, highly educated people, very educated people, with important positions, and um, they wanted to get blessings. One of them was more of a devotee. The other one wasn't so much a devotee, but they were anyway. But they were both nice guys. 
And so they just wanted to get blessings for their relationship. It wasn't a marriage. It wasn't even a gay marriage. It was just, they just wanted blessings. So, uh, you know, acting as a selfless guru, I thought, you know, better get Sarvatma in trouble than me. And so, um, so Sarvatma drove down to do this little blessing ceremony. And, um, and I wrote this blessing. And the blessing, I, I mean, I'll tell you, this is really paraphrasing exactly what I said. I said, I, my blessing is that through this relationship, which you already have, that you will understand, you will come to understand that real love is not about the material body. Real love is the relationship between souls, not bodies. Real happiness is loving God, not trying to enjoy the body. In other words, I, you know, I, 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 I pray to Krishna to bless you to give up the bodily concept of life and just become pure devotees, which I think is our philosophy. So anyway, because at that time, ISKCON was a bit, I mean, if we're allowed to be honest, uh, a lot, not everyone, but a lot of ISKCON was a bit, I think the word is homophobic. And so, and so then another thing that I said, which kind of some people were just, you know, I guess if you say, you know, like he had a cow, I guess that's pious because of the role of the cow in our philosophy. But anyway, they were having cows right and left because I, I, I made the shocking statement that bhakti yoga is a gradual process, whether you're straight or gay or Martian or Venusian or poly organic, you know, or, I mean, whatever you are. Bhakti yoga is a gradual process. So therefore, for anyone of any orientation, monogamy is better than promiscuity. I mean, I hope you're all having like a real duh moment right now. You know, that, that monogamy is better than promiscuity. So therefore, for gay people, I didn't even touch on the subject of gay marriage. I just didn't want to, you know, they weren't even ready for that discussion. So that's all I said. And so the result was on the GBC conference, I was a GBC member then, and one very famous GBC member uh, wrote in that I should be thrown off the GBC. And, and that's not enough. It's like, that's way too little punishment. I should be thrown off the GBC I should have be stripped of my sannyas and I should be, you know, dumped as an ISKCON guru. It's interesting because, and what triggered all this is that this couple, one of them was kind of like a gay activist. They took this picture of, the, of themselves, like kind of looking at each other, which would be kind of like overly sentimental. Even if it was like they were as a guy and a girl, it was like, come on, you know, that's a little too mushy and they were kind of like looking at each other and uh and so they just went crazy and then as soon as this very famous gbc leader wrote that another very famous iskan guru and leader gbc wrote in i second the motion and then and then this we had this brawl you know this verbal brawl <laughs> i mean just, i can look back on it and laugh i mean they're all nice devotees it's just you know we're all kind of advancing gradually so 
So then one GBC said, come on. He said to me, just admit you made a mistake. And I said, yeah, I did make a mistake. I admit it. I overestimated your intelligence. Anyway, so I mean, my point is not to insult, but I'm just saying, you know, we were kind of rolling around in the mud over this. So, but now, and then I wrote a whole essay about it, explained the whole thing. But now it's kind of like taken for granted. Like no one really even talks about this anymore. I mean, obviously, if someone is whatever your sexual orientation, monogamy is obviously much better than promiscuity. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, I don't know how I got into all that, but you showed him IE. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Everything you said is exactly what I always say. And um, I think- I I suppose then the symptom, one of the symptoms of the orthopraxy that you're talking about then is this continual back and forth about women gurus. Because if we were were following orthodoxy, then we wouldn't even be having a discussion because it's right there in the philosophy. Okay, regarding that, regarding that, uh, it has nothing to do with philosophy because the GBC overwhelmingly accept that women can and should be gurus. There's no philosophical, uh, really, I mean, not, there's, there's no significant philosophical disagreement. I and mean, there's always, you know, a few people, Hare Krishna, but I'd say overwhelmingly, it's political. It's po- and, and when I say political, I don't mean dirty, well, I, it's because there's a relatively small group of people. There's a re- it's like a culture war. There's a relatively small group of people who literally would probably rather put down women than go back to Godhead. And if I can just be very honest, I don't think they're, I think they have, you know, certain pathologies. I won't mention their names. And I don't think they're healthy. And, um, and it, it's a question. And basically it's kind of, I guess you're adults, right? So I guess I'll, I'll just be honest. ISKCON is facing the same issue that every every truly international religion is facing, and that is culture wars. Because if you look at, for example, in in, in America, in, the, in first world countries, uh, there's overwhelming support among Catholics, among Anglicans, for women being priests. Very strong support. You go to places like Latin America, Africa, some other third world countries, much more conservative, and, and there's a lot of opposition to it. And so it really comes down to these, these culture battles. So I would say in the Western world, there's overwhelming support for women to be gurus and whatever else they want to be, you know, if they're qualified. And the opposition, there's some opposition coming from the West, but almost all of it is coming from other places where they have a different cause. And, and, and what makes it really, in my mind, frankly, reprehensible is that they falsely plead, and, and, and the worst ones, I think, are not even the Indians, the native Indians. It's Western devotees who, who are like, have become super Hindus. And I think they're actually much worse than the Indians. And so um, they use this completely false argument that uh, they are being sensitive to the culture of India, which is complete nonsense because there are innumerable famous, powerful women gurus in India among Hindus. So this false argument that they're just being culturally sensitive in India, of course, completely wrong. 
And, and as we know, uh, putting down women like this is um, you know, one of the most efficient ways to destroy any chance of the Hare Krishna movement succeeding in the Western world. And these people who are literally, it's their life mission to put women down, which I think definitely reveals a very strange psychology. But none of these people, none of the people who oppose women gurus has shown any significant success in bringing Western people to Krishna consciousness. And all the devotees who are actually successful in helping souls in the Western world uh, don't go for that. So again, if you understand that these cultural battles go on in all religions, and the world's becoming increasingly polemicized and polarized, uh, then um, it's not just ISKCON. It's not just that, you know, what's wrong with devotees? Frankly, you know, we have these problems in ISKCON to the extent that we have devotees who are not, to be honest, that Krishna conscious. If you look at the history of Vaishnavism, the real enemies of the Vaishnavas in India you know, there's always the impersonalist, sort of like the philosophical opponents. But the people who are really, I say in a, in a more analogous way, the enemies of Vaishnavism were the smartest. And the word smarta comes, and so these people are the new smartas. I'm going to explain that. Because the word smarta comes from the Sanskrit word smriti, which is, you know, it means memory. It's also a category of, of Sanskrit literature, the smriti literature. And so it's specifically in one category of Smriti literature that you have these endless rules and technical things. Some of them are misogynistic. Some of them are, I mean, it's not all revealed scripture. It's just Sanskrit literature that, you know, a bunch of people thought we should listen to. And, um, and some of the Smriti literature is divine, absolute literature, like Bhagavad Gita and Sriyan Bhagavatam. So anyway, um, so it's the smartest who always said that, no, someone that's not born a Brahmin can't become a Brahmin. And therefore, uh, you know, people not born in caste Brahmin families can't worship deities, can't be initiated, can't serve in various ways. And the funny thing is, these smartas, who I, I, I really think are the legitimate representatives of the smartas who have always attacked Vaishnavas. And I think some of them are attacking real Vaishnavism from within the Hare Krishna movement. That's my personal opinion. Um, some of the, you know, some of the loudest ones are Western who according to the smarta regulations cannot be Brahmins, cannot speak for the Vedic literature, cannot give any opinion on any of these topics in a learned assembly, cannot be initiated. And so what they do is they refer to obscure Sanskrit texts that no one ever paid much attention to, to try to override everything Prabhupada said, everything Lord Chaitanya said, everything the Bhagavatam says. And so, you know, that's, I, I think that's really what's going on. I, um, I don't want to, despite its antiseptic nature, I don't want to BS you, you know, so I think, I think that's what's really going on. And, and I think you're an adult, you've given your life to Prabhupada and you have a right to know it. That's what's really going on is a resurgence of a very old problem with smartest so-called Brahmins who are smartest, who try to lord it over other people and put other people down 
by all kinds of technical ritual principles and who completely miss the real point of Vaishnavism, which is that everybody gets a fair chance. So that's what we're seeing. And, and, and they, 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 just, they try to cloak it in the garb of, well, we're doing it because you know, we're preaching in India, we have to be culturally sensitive, which is complete nonsense. Because everyone knows that in India, Indians have no problems with women gurus, and there's many of them. And there always have been many of them. So that's what we're really facing. So I think the GBC, and, and, and I give them credit for this. I give them credit for this. I don't criticize them for this, are trying to keep ISKCON together. And I think that is something which is so valuable and essential that it's worth trying to work things out, not to just destroy ISKCON. But that's what's going on. And, and I think devotees in ISKCON have a right to know what's really going on. Thank you. So, there is a question by Agari Krishna Das. Oh, uh, Agari Krishna. Hare Krishna Maharaj. Uh, I'm Krishna. in a vehicle, so. I can uh, tell. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, you won't be able to. My lighting is really bad. Oh, there you are. You look like a little. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've got two eyes there and a nose. Um, so Maharaj, I don't mean to be anticlimactic on the Goshtanandi mood of the, the class, but um, my question relates to the ontology of the deities. And the reason for that is, um, as you mentioned, uh, you know, here at Gitanagri, there's a famous Radhadamada uh, deities. And everyone knows that Prabhupada was praying to Radhadamada, or at least yeah, the Radhadamada temple. Prabhupada was praying very fervent, fervently to get empowerment from Rupa Goswami. And also even in the history of um, ISKCON as well, these deities, which are here at Gitanagri, um, you know, they inspired so many, uh, they inspired the Radha Dhammadar Bas Party to basically generate Prabhupada enough financial resources for Prabhupada to, uh, you know, uh, spread the movement. Um, so I'm just trying to understand, yeah, in terms of the different branches of incarnations that uh, Lord Chaitanya explained to Sanatana Goswami, Tatma Rupa, Swam Rupa, Veshavatar, there isn't like an explicit mention of the Archa Vigraha branch of incarnation, uh, which are the deities. So I'm just trying to understand, yeah, just uh, the mystery of Radha Damodar here at Gitanagri and trying to... Yes, regarding that, um, I have to admit that I have never spent a lot of time on those very technical descriptions. And I, I believe there is one category which refers to the deity form. Uh, if you can go back and check that. But um, uh, what you said first, I think is very interesting. The fact that Prabhupada fervently prayed to Radha Damodar in Vrindavan, and that then you have these very famous, very special Radha Damodar deities in Gita Nagari, also worshipped by, um, by Vishnu Jana Swami, a very great soul, someone who I, uh, I think Iskhan misses him, very great soul. But so, um, 
So there is something very special. I mean, there's clearly something very special about the deities of Gita Nagari. And, uh, and, you know, you mentioned now, and to be honest, I hadn't thought of it, but now that I think of it, I think there is something very special about that connection. Prabhupada's praying to those deities, and then, and then when Prabhupada wanted to come back to the West and establish Varnashram, he wanted to do it here. So um, the, the main point here is that uh, Radha Damdar, Radha and Krishna, and they're personally appearing to all of you. So I think that's what's most important here. Haribol Maharaj. Hey, Haribol. obeisances, all glories to Srila Prabhupada. This is Rajalila. Hey, Rajalila. Hey, such an important aspect of our philosophy, leaving the body. So please give your blessings to our dear God brother that we are here with him now. He's leaving his body. His name is Bali Maharaj. So Bali Maharaj is here. And if you can please give your blessings, Hare Krishna, Bali, this is Maharaj, Hidananda Maharaj. Okay, he's gonna chant Hare Krishna for you. Okay, Mark. Just, just thank you so much, Maharaj, for your presence here. Thank you, thank you, and we look thank forward you. to coming to Nagar again. Thank you, and all, and I, I wish all the best. For, for I have to. I have to say, I just noticed my old buddy, Badahari and Kosa. Are you guys at Gita Nagari? We're, uh, we're in Florida. Still. Yes. <laughs> Tenacious. So, <laughs> Hare Krishna. Nice to see you guys. Nice to see you. Thank you for your class. I remember Badahari when I was in, um, I spent several months or three or four months in Laguna Beach back when Badahari was a temple president and Kosarup, of course, who was doing so much. And um, Badahari used to lead the most beautiful guru pujas. I mean, kirtan, he would sing. I still remember those. Mm. I still remember that graduate in music from USC. <laughs> So, any any other questions? There's one remaining question from Bhakta Abe. Hare Krishna, Charyadev. Thank you for coming for this class. It was very nice. Um, two questions for you. I'll, I'll do them in short fire. First is, uh, you said we need to be philosophical and how we do that. And I'm wondering how to become philosophically minded as quickly as possible. And the second question is, um, what's your comment on the Call of the Jiva, there's a debate going on. Uh, are we eternally have Krishna consciousness? Or? Okay, okay, let's let's go for it very quickly. Um, okay, regarding philosophical, I mean, not everyone is just inclined necessarily to be a philosopher. 
but at least we should appreciate it. Vedic culture is set up in such a way, even if someone is not philosophical, you should, you know, support those who are trying to present Krishna consciousness philosophically or try to do it yourself. Regarding the fall of the jiva, it's so simple, but, okay, I'll give you the short version. Krishna, in the Bhagavad, in, the, in all of our literature, Bhagavatam, Bhagavad Gita, Chaitanya uh, Charitam, there's only one place where Krishna directly talks about how the jiva came to this world. And that is in the Bhagavatam, fourth canto, chapter 28, I think verses 53 and 55, or right around there, where Krishna says twice, you rejected me, you left me. He says it twice. Hitwa mam, rejecting me, you came to this world. Mam vihaya, leaving me, you came to this world. Now, so the arguments given against this are not serious. I'll explain it very briefly. Prabhupada says in the in a purport regarding um, Jai and Vijay, where Prabhupada said the conclusion is no one falls in Vaikunta. So the people that quote that always forget to do one thing, and that is they forget to see what that story is about. So what is that story about? First of all, um, who, who's speaking there? It's Yudhisthira Nardamuni, I think. Nardamuni is speaking to Yudhisthira. And he begins speaking because Yudhisthira says, there's something you said which I find ashradheya, which literally means unbelievable. Unbelievable. Ashradheya. And the unbelievable thing is that someone who does not want to enjoy without Krishna, someone who wants to serve Krishna, who loves Krishna, can be driven out of the spiritual world by someone else. And that's what Yudhisthira says I find unbelievable, and that's what the whole story is about. So it's in that context that Prabhupada says no one can be, you know, fall by Kunt in the sense that no one can be driven out someone who wants to serve Krishna. That's what the story is about. Another, I have to say, bad argument, no offense intended to anyone, is that um, how could we ever leave Krishna? I'll tell you why that's a false argument. Like the spiritual world is so groovy that who would ever leave it? Um, there's a few things wrong with that argument. Number one, the spiritual world doesn't operate on the principle of hedonism. It's not like it's so ecstatic, there's so much raw pleasure that no one would ever give it up. It, it's about love. But the real point is, you cannot be held responsible for your decisions if you did not clearly understand what your choices were and what the consequences were. In order for you to be responsible in general for anything you have to do, you have to do it consciously, and you have to know what else you might have done. So let's say, like this really silly thing, we come from the Tattasta Shakti. Okay, uh, information alert. There is no such thing as a Tattasta Shakti. There's no, I mean, there's no place. 
Tatastashakti is a is an ontological category. It's a category. It's a type of living being. We are Tatastashakti. There is no place that is Tatastashakti. It's not a place. It's a kind of living being. So to say we come from Tatastashakti means we we come from our ontological category, which is just complete nonsense. If you say we come from Mahavishnu, we do in between creation cycles. But that's not the original explanation. Now, here's why people say, well, we would, no one could ever choose to leave Krishna. But that's nonsense for the following reason. Because even if you were coming from the marginal potency, which is not a place, but let's say even if you were coming from that, you could not be held responsible for your decision to come to the material world unless you knew there were other items on the menu. There were other places you could go. If you didn't know there was somewhere else, how could you be held responsible and punished for choosing the material world? And if you knew that there were other options like Krishna Loka or Vishnu Loka, that would not be a real option unless you actually know what that means. It's like you go to a Japanese restaurant and it's the whole menu is in Japanese. And uh, someone says, well, why didn't you choose this? Well, because I don't read Japanese. I don't read Japanese. How can you be held responsible for choosing to come to this world if you had no idea what else you could choose? And if you did know what else you could choose, then you consciously left Krishna. You know, the, the, the whole motto of Prabhupada's movement is back to home. I mean, is that, that's not hard English, is it? I mean, is anyone here really that linguistically challenged that you can't understand the words back to home? So um, Prabhupada said, you know, in, in the first record he made, we are all originally Krishna conscious entities. Like maybe someone needs, I don't know, English as a second language training. Originally, we are all originally Krishna conscious entities. So uh, some people I think are just determined to get it wrong. And, and they, they, you know, they dedicate their lives to keeping down women. They dedicate their lives to contradicting Prabhupada. Strange desires, you know, some strange living entities show up. Uh, but, you know, dedicating your life to proving that Prabhupada's wrong, or now there's a group of people that want to show that, you know, we don't have Krishna, love for Krishna inside of us, even though, you know, the Chaitanya Charitamrita says that we do. Um, even though the analogy Krishna uses for illusion, the, the image Krishna uses throughout the Gita is covering, abhritam jnana, consciousness is covered. You have to uncover consciousness. And when you uncover consciousness, you're conscious of what really exists, namely Krishna and your relationship with Krishna. Anyway, I won't go on and on, but um, it's funny because there are some people that think that if you just blatantly contradict Prabhupada's teachings, you're still a loyal follower. But if you just, you know, don't wear a dhoti, then, you know, you're not really following Prabhupada. 
we have a lot of you know very deep thinkers. So, any other point? All right, could I ask one more thing on that? Sure, Badahari G. Thank you so much. I've been plagued by this thing, and I really appreciate your answers. It seems like Prabhupada's very clear, and yeah, I love your answers. It seems like mainly they're quoting Jiva Goswami. And the last misquoting, thing, misquoting, yeah, misquoting. So um, I haven't studied <clears throat> Jiva Goswami's statements on that, but do you know what they're what those arguments are? They misquote. They misquote. Jiva Goswami doesn't say we were never with Krishna. One thing is, and we explain, you know, we wrote that book called uh, Oop, which is our original position. Yeah. Great, great acronym, isn't it? Oop. But anyway, so so I wrote about half that book. And what I showed is that in all Vedic literature, whether it's Bhagavad Gita, Srimad Bhagavatam, the Upanishads, you name it, in every Vedic literature, whenever words are used that denote unlimited time spans. And whenever those words are used about something in the material world, the words are not being used literally. So, so the one that said anadi karma or beginningless karma, it's not literal because you never find in the Vedic literature any word denoting an endless time span, which is being used literally. I'll give you an example. In the Bhagavad Gita chapter two, Krishna describes the soul as Shashvato, Shashvato Yang Purana, everlasting. Shashvata means everlasting. Now, Krishna uses the same word, the exact same word, just in the feminine, Shashvati, uh, because he's talking about Sama, years, everlasting years, endless, eternal years, to talk about something which Krishna directly says is not eternal. So, and, and he's talking in chapter six of the Bhagavad Gita about when Arjuna asks, what happens to the faithful person that falls down from his practice, the fallen yogi? And then Krishna says, that person goes up to these pious planets, you know, all kind, you know, every day is a, is a you know, every day is a, is a festival up in the higher planets. And then Krishna says, Ushitwa. Ushitwa is just actually from the word vas, vasa, like dwelling. Anyway, it's, it's just the imperative. So Ushitwa, having dwelled for eternal time, endless time in those higher planets, he comes back. <laughs> in other words, it's obviously not eternal because he wasn't there before, this fallen yogi. He, he was in this world. He went up there and he comes back to this world. So in every possible sense, it's not eternal. And yet Krishna uses the word Shashvata. And that's because it's referring to something in the material world, and therefore it's figurative, not literal. But when that word is used about the soul, it means literally eternal. And you find that's exactly the same for words like Nitya, which can be always or eternal, uh, anadi or um, sanatana. Every Sanskrit word that denotes an unlimited time span 
when applied to something in this world is used non-literally and figuratively to describe just a very long time, but not literally eternal. And also, um, and, and the same words used about actual spirit, eternal things, the word is used literally. So therefore, here's another point from the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna says in chapter two of the Bhagavad Gita, na sato vidyate bhavo, na bhavo vidyate sataha. Of the asat, temporary things, there is no permanent existence. And of things that have, you know, are sat, there's no non-existence. So if there was such a thing as a spiritual body, which didn't exist before, right? Because you never had one. And now it exists because you just got liberated because you subscribed to my ministry. So if that was the case, then it would directly contradict the most basic teaching of the Bhagavad Gita. The most basic teaching of the Bhagavad Gita is that there are only two kinds of things, eternal things and temporary things. Temporary things never are eternal and eternal things never begin and never end. So if your spiritual body begins at a certain point, it is a third category of thing, which Krishna says doesn't exist. So, um, and if you say, and if, if you see our conditioned life was literally beginningless, then how did it start? What that would mean is, that Krishna, for endless, infinite time, made us defective. And, and, and since then, our conditioned life, our defectiveness, would have no beginning. It would have no beginning. How could we be the cause of it? How could we have chosen something which was never chosen? Because it always existed. And so these people, they're not, obviously, they're not like born philosophers because they, they quote the word anadi, but they also quote the word tattasta shakti. So if we come from the tattasta shakti, we're not anadi buddha. How could we be, how could we be conditioned since beginningless time when we came from somewhere else? Even though that somewhere else is not actually a place, there is no place called tattasta shakti. So there's all kinds of philosophical contradictions. And again, it all comes because some people somehow or other have come to the conclusion um, that uh, they know much better than Prabhupada. For example, I started Krishna West. I should, I should have like a little button I can push that makes like this cheering sound. Anyway, so I started Krishna West and... Um, and I wrote papers giving massive evidence that Prabhupada approves of this. Not only approves, Prabhupada is urging us to do this. Urging us to do this. Prabhupada personally said to me in Honolulu, he said, I, he said, I never said you have to wear Indian clothes. So, you know, I decided to run with that ball. So I feel because I'm in Prabhupada's movement and I'm Prabhupada's disciple, whatever I do, even though it may seem a little, you know, unusual to some people, I have, I feel a personal responsibility to justify what I'm doing within Prabhupada's instructions or his personal example. 
So how can you come from the Tatasta Shakti and yet be Anadi Baddha? And again, the only time Krishna, as in God, the only time Krishna ever talks about this in any of our literature, he says twice, you rejected me and came to this world. And that's why you're suffering, which is perfectly logical. Because how could you be suffering for something? How could you suffer for something you never chose? What kind of monster would God be if he makes you suffer for something you never chose? And if you did choose it, how is it a fair choice if you didn't know what the other options were? So I rest my case. <laughs> um, I have, yeah. I'm satisfied, but I, I wonder, I've, I think there's other arguments they have that I don't, I don't know. I would guess I would like to ask about. Any, does anyone know of any other serious arguments? One thing I heard is that Lord Chaitanya trying to plant the seed of devotional service in our heart. So if he plants the seed, was bhakti, is bhakti dormant in our heart, or does it have to be placed by devotees in Krishna? Ah, that's, that's clever. Um, yes, um, Lord Chaitanya plants the seed in the sense that um, Guru Krishna uh, Prasadi Pai Bhakti Lata Bij in the sense that uh, we begin our spiritual life. I mean, you know, you, you, you're born in the Krishna conscious movement at a certain point, you decide to stick with it or, or you decide, I mean, all of us, whether you're born in the movement or not born in the movement, at a certain point, everyone has to decide that I want to do this. And so the same thing, Rupa Goswami says, Ado in the beginning, there's, there's little faith mm -hmm. in the beginning. So in terms of talking about what actually happens in this world, um, yeah, our, our, we can talk about, like, I joined the movement on this day, or I began chanting Hare Krishna on that day. But Lord Chaitanya, that, that famous verse, that, um, what's that verse? Sadhya Kabunai, Nitya Siddha Krishna Prema. Sadhya Kabunai. Yeah. So Nitya Siddha means eternally a fact. It doesn't begin. Love of Krishna didn't begin at a certain time. It's Nitya Siddha, established, perfected. But Nitya Siddha Krishna is Sadhya, and it is not Sadhya. Now, the word Sadhya is obviously another form of the word Sadhana. And so this directly refutes that idea because, as we know, we begin on the platform of Sadhana Bhakti. But sadhya means something to be achieved by sadhana. Something to be, to be achieved by sadhana. That's what the word sadhya means. And so therefore, sadhya, it is never sadhya. Devotional service is never something that you can just build because it's always there. So to say it's never sadhya, is in direct contrast to saying it's Nitya Siddha. Nitya Siddha and, and Nasadya are diametric opposites. Something which always existed can't be brought about. It can be awakened, 
And that's exactly the, by the way, the image. You got to put all these things together, not just use the gardening image. For example, Bhaktivinoda Thakur, Jeev Jago, wake up. When you wake up, you don't create a life you didn't have before. What in the world does Bhaktivinoda Thakur mean when he says wake up? And so Jeev Jago exactly corresponds to, so these two opposites, something is either, something is Nitya Siddha cannot be Sadhya. Something that is Sadhya cannot be Nitya, nitya Siddha. They're exact opposites. So uh, Nitya Siddha, Krishna Prema, Sadhya Kabunai, Shavanadi Shuddha Chiti Kari Udai. The word Udai, by the way, means that it, it awakens. Like for example, uh, Udila Aruna. It's just another form of the word. The sun rises. So Udaya is another form of the word Udila. It means arising. Ud actually means up, and Aya means going in Sanskrit. So Udaya Shavana Shuddha Chite. So when you say that this love manifests, it arises when your mind is purified. This is so simple. This is so simple. What is, the, what is the image of purification? When you purify water, the pure water was already there. To purify something doesn't mean you inject it. To purify something means it's already there. You just remove everything that is impure, extraneous, not the real thing itself. When you purify water, you simply remove everything that is not water. And what's left is pure water. So how could you use the image of Jago, Jeep Jago waking up? How could you use the image of Shuddha Chite? The mind has to be purified. When you purify something, you don't add some, anything to it. You remove things. Purification means removing, not adding. So the image of Jeep Jago, the image of Shuddha Chite, of Nitya Siddha, it's all over the place. And like I said, if your spiritual body didn't exist before, it would be in a third ontological category that according to the Bhagavad Gita doesn't exist. Nasato vidyate bhavo na bhavo vidyate sataha. Two, Ubayor, of the two. Ubayor means of the two. And then Krishna says, Ubayor api, even of these two, drishto antas. Anta means end. It's the same word as in English. Anta, in this case, the end means the conclusion, the final conclusion. Ubayor api drishto antas tuanio tattva darshibi. Okay, it's, oh my God, this is like the super smoking gun. One second. <laughs> Can I close my window because it's getting a little cool here? I mean, if you were, I know you probably opened all your windows in Pennsylvania to beat the heat today. So you may want to close your window. So Krishna says, God, when you get to a certain age and you get up after you've been sitting and walk like some old guy. Anyway, so Ubayor Jisto Antas to Anayos Tatva Darshi B. Krishna says, that this conclusion, this final conclusion of the two, of the only two kinds of things there are, this final conclusion is seen by those who are tattva darshi, 
The exact same word Krishna uses in the Bhagavad Gita that tadvidhi pranipatena pariprasnena sevaya upadekshantite jnanam jnanis tattva darshina. So tattva darshina, tattva darshina, we just, and they're using different parts of speech, same word. Tattva means, tattva is a fundamental category of existence. A fundamental real thing. I've explained this so much. Okay, it's very quickly. Tut. Tut in Sanskrit means that. You just add an H and it's English. Tut means that. That is a demonstrative pronoun, as you all know. So a demonstrative pronoun is just what it says it is. It demonstrates that. So when you say that, you're pointing out something. So therefore, in super condensed uh, Sanskrit philosophical jargon, Tut just means a real thing because you can't point out something that's not a real thing. So Tut means that as an Om Tut Sat. So therefore, Twa in Sanskrit just means it's something like, like the English suffix ness, thatness. In other words, being, having the, having the state of being that. So therefore the word Tat Twa means a fundamental real thing or a fundamental category of real things. Often translated as truth, like those who have seen the truth, Tattva Darshi, but it really means literally more technically, those who have seen the fundamental categories of real things. And that's why the word is used Tattva as for example, in Vishnu Tattva. So to say Vishnu Tattva means that there is a fundamental category of real thing, which is Vishnu or Jiva Tattva. Anyway, so Krishna, when Krishna says, you know, approach those who, who have who've seen the truth, he says literally those who have seen tattva. So a bona fide guru is not simply one who has seen the truth, but specifically, according to the Bhagavad Gita, one who has seen the truth categorically. One who has seen the truth categorically. And in this verse, in sort of this Sanskritic Bengali, uh, that Nitya Siddha Krishna Prema Sadhya Kabunai Shavanadi Shuddha Chite Kari Udai. So, oh, I'm sorry, it's in the Gita verse. So, Nasato Vijate Bhavo, Nava Vijate Sata, Ubayora Pi Drishto Antas. So, Krishna says, those who are Tatvadarshi. Tuanios tat those who have seen all of the fundamental categories of reality, they say there are these two things. These are the tatvadarsis. These are the people who, according to Bhagavad Gita 434, will enlighten you. And therefore, to say there is a third thing, which is not mentioned in the Gita, which is not mentioned in the Bhagavatam, a thing which began but doesn't end. completely contradicts the most fundamental level of our philosophy. So, uh, those are a few points. Thank and, you uh, very much. Yeah, I, I, I don't have so much patience for these things because 
And these people who try to parade themselves as philosophers. You know, and, and, and like their goal in life is to contradict Prabhupada. Yeah, some people, their goal in life is to keep women down. And some people, their goal in life is to contradict Prabhupada. Oh, so if you could just, uh, a few more minutes, I've just been reminded by my handler. Nanda Leva, that... Uh-oh, Sadashiva. I'm, I'm going to take a rain check on the Sadashiva question. <laughs> See, there, are, there are no more questions or, or comments. We will would like to thank you enormously yeah. for this uh, for this appearance and uh, extend, extended appearance. Um, we don't want to take more of your time. We took over two hours of it. And I know you actually, by prescription of your doctor, uh, you're not you're taking a break, and this is violating directly the order of your doctor. So we appreciate that you took the time to speak to us. Um, also, our fearless leader Dhruva Maharaj Das wants to thank you personally, uh, Dhruva, if you can. You just blew it. I was supposed to introduce myself as a resident of Gitanagari. Thank Hi. you so much for taking time out of your schedule to speak to us and give us some enlightenment, um, bring some light to Gitanagari. We are really grateful. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, thank you very much for all the wonderful service you're doing. Hare Krishna. Thank you so much, Mahesh. Hare Krishna. So we can, uh, we can let you go. Uh, yeah, thank you all very much. I, um, I mean, you are all the hope of the world. Because, I mean, you're Prabhupada's faithful followers. And uh, I know I, I actually follow all the really great things going on in Gita Nagari. I read the news about it. And um, yeah, I just, want, I just want to thank you for dedicating your lives to Prabhupada's mission. Okay, well... Thank you again. Thank you, devotees. There will be a class on Sunday morning by Mukunda Das, Prabhu from South Africa. And also at the last moment has been added Mukunda Goswami from Australia, who is going to speak on March 1st about his first encounters with Srila Prabhupada. At say, say hello to him for me. I will certainly do that. Great soul, Mukunda Goswami. Yes. And so are you. Hare Krishna, Arrivederci. Thank you. Thank you, Maharaj. Hare Krishna. Thank you, Maharaj. Have a good one.